Let's, let's, let's just pray before we start. <coughs> oh Father, your, your word is holy. And Lord, it's powerful. And, and Lord, it, it says for us to be holy as you are. And Father, we pray that, that your truth in it will just be implanted in our hearts. Lord, that that new nature from you in us will grow and be nurtured. Oh Lord, that you'll have your way in us. Oh Father, anoint my words. Lord, anoint everyone who hears. Father, that your word tonight can be life to us and that we can live by it. Oh Lord, how we thank and praise you for your word. Amen. Okay, we um tonight we're on the eleventh, in fact, uh, talk in the Elijah series. So um if you find one Kings and chapter eighteen <coughs> one Kings chapter eighteen and uh, I'm gonna read from verse forty one <coughs> to forty six. Um, and this is immediately after the contest on Mount Carmel, the fire has fallen and consumed Elijah's sacrifice, and uh, the prophets of Baal have been put to death. Right, <clears throat> verse 41. And Elijah said to Ahab, Go up, eat and drink, for there is a sound of the rushing of rain. So Ahab went up to eat and drink. And Elijah went up to the top of Carmel, and he bowed himself down upon the earth, and put his face between his knees. And he said to his servants, Go up now, look toward the sea. And he went up and looked and said, There is nothing. And he said, Go again seven times. <clears throat> and at the seventh time he said, Behold, a little cloud like a man's hand is rising out of the sea. And he said, Go up, say to Ahab, Prepare your chariot and go down lest the rain stop you. And in a little while the heavens grew black with clouds and wind, and there was a great rain. And Ahab rode and went to Jezreel. And the hand of the Lord was on Elijah, and he girded up his loins and ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. <clears throat> now there's a couple of sections in the talk tonight. Um, and firstly, what I want to, to deal with is the simple fact that um, we read here that Ahab goes up to eat and drink, um, whereas Elijah vanished away on his own to keep praying. And I just want us to hold in our minds that contrast. Here are two leaders of God's people, Elijah the faithful prophet, Ahab the totally unfaithful king of God's people. And there's been this marvellous miracle on Mount Carmel, and uh, in response to that, Ahab wants to eat and drink. Elijah wants to pray. And the reason that Elijah says, look, Ahab, you go and eat and drink, is because he wouldn't have bothered to say, Ahab, would you like to join me in a time of prayer? I mean, he just would not have bothered to do that. He knew exactly what Ahab was all about and wouldn't have expected anything more. And this provides us with an excellent example of something that is not... I think realised by Christians in the way that it ought to be. It's a, a very simple principle, but it's one that is profoundly important. And it's simply this, that there are many things in life uh, which are 
perfectly legitimate in themselves but which can actually become a matter of absolute unfaithfulness to God. For instance, <clears throat> there is nothing wrong with eating and drinking. And the fact that Ahab wanted to eat and drink was not in itself a sin. There is nothing wrong with eating and drinking. There is nothing wrong about thinking about your stomach, for example. God has created us with a stomach, with the need for food. Uh, he even loves it that we enjoy our food. There is nothing wrong with food and drink at all. But the thing that Elijah realised, he asked himself a question. He said, there's nothing wrong with eating and drinking, but is this the moment to be doing it? And Elijah knew that it wasn't. Now, him vanishing off like this to, you know, to kind of pray on, it wasn't a case of, of fasting. He wasn't here starting a fast. It's just that he was, at that moment, too busy doing God's will to be concerned with his stomach. I mean, his stomach was a perfectly legitimate need. But with the fantastic thing that had just happened, he was too into what God was doing at that moment to be bothering about food and drink. Unlike Ahab, who food and drink at that moment was all that he could think of. Now, one of the things that the Bible warns against as being desperately dangerous spiritually throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament as well, is idolatry. Indeed, the first commandment in the law of God, in the law of Moses, was not to have any gods before him. No idols were allowed. And indeed, in the New Testament, Paul takes it one step further, and he says, whatever idol it is you're worshipping, it's, it's actually a nothing. It's a nothing, but behind it is the power of a demon. And any form of idolatry in our lives is certainly going to debilitate us spiritually to a great degree. But the thing is that when we think of the word idolatry, um, we tend to think of statues and idols and, and totem poles and things like that. And yet that is not the only form that idolatry takes. In fact, idolatry is simply this. Idolatry is when something whatever that thing may be, it may be a thing that is bad in itself, uh, example comes to mind pornography, or it might be something that is absolutely legitimate in itself, it might be a hobby, might be a car or something, could be anything, but idolatry is when something in our lives is displacing the Lord from the number one slot in our hearts. Anything in our lives which pushes God down to being number two, three, four, or five, rather than absolutely number one, that is an idol to us. And anything that does that is an idol. And that anything can be a quite legitimate thing in itself. You can idolise a car, you could idolise hi-fi, you could idolise just about anything, no matter how valid that thing might be in itself. And um, in the New Testament, as Paul, uh, in the New Testament as well, Paul the Apostle, at one point, um, identifies idolatry with covetousness and greed. And if you think about it, why does he do that? It's because idolatry is kind of I want, I want, I want. There's a something that I want, and I'm going to have it at any cost. And if I have to go against the Bible, you know, whether or not God says no, I'm going to have it. And I'm going to turn a blind ear to anything 
that stops me getting it. That is then to be in an, adult, in an idolatrous relationship with whatever that thing is. But the important thing to underline is that even legitimate things which have a rightful place in our lives and with which the Lord has no controversy whatsoever per se, any of those things have the potential of becoming an idol to us. Alright, just, just go to Haggai and, and let's actually, um, let's towards the end of the Old Testament and see a very striking example of the result of uh, this kind of idolatry. Now I've just proclaimed that Haggai is at the end of the Old Testament and I now cannot myself find it. It's tucked away rather, that's right, Zephaniah, book of Haggai. <laughs> Just bef well, shortly before Matthew, yes. And um, Haggai, chapter 1, and if you just, just stick your finger in, in verse 9, this is kind of following on from Nehemiah, where, you know, the city is being rebuilt, and various people played various roles um, at certain times, and Haggai was concerned mainly with the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem, which had fallen into ruin. They'd been away in Babylonian captivity, and by now they'd come back into the land, and uh, the captivity was you know, over, but of course it took years and years and years to rebuild everything. Nehemiah oversaw the rebuilding of the wall, etc., etc. And Haggai comes on the scene primarily concerned with getting the temple back into the condition that it should have been in under the law of Moses. And uh, I mean, basically in the book of Haggai you've got five prophecies which the prophet brings to the people and this is one that we're concerned with. Now look at what he says, and he's speaking here to God's people. He said, you have looked for much and lo, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why? That's not very nice of him, is it? But then God can do that if he likes, can't he? Why, says the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins while you busy yourselves each with his own house. Now, can you see the situation that God's people are in here? There is nothing wrong with having a house. It's a perfectly normal, perfectly right thing to have. But the situation here is that the temple the house of God in the Old Testament was in ruins. The temple was where God lived at that time. And it was in ruins. And the Jews had come back into the land, and they had done up their own houses, and nothing was wrong with that at all. But the point is, they were busying themselves doing up their own houses, and the temple continued to lie in ruins. Now why was that? Well, I'll tell you. Because in order for the temple to be restored meant two things. Firstly, it meant the financial requirement for Israel to put the money in for it to be rebuilt. And then, with the temple system working, the financial upkeep of the Levites and all the people who served Israel full time. And the point was that the Jews had come back into the land and they were busily spending their money on themselves and there was nothing for the Lord. And the temple lay in ruins. And notice that the Lord's complaint to them here, through Haggai, isn't that they were spending money on themselves, isn't that they were doing up their own homes. It was the fact that what they wanted was coming before what he wanted. The order that they were doing it in is they had what they want, and if there was anything left over, of course, that went to the Lord. 
Whereas the Lord wanted them to do it the other way round. To see everything as being the Lord's and they could keep for themselves what the Lord allowed them to keep. Can you see the point? And of course that is obviously decided between individuals and the Lord. But can you see the point here? There is nothing wrong with eating and drinking. There is nothing wrong with having a house doing it up. <coughs> nothing wrong with that at all. There is nothing wrong with a million things. But any of these things can be put before the Lord in our lives, therefore become an idol to us. And what is the result? The result is that the house of the Lord, the temple, ends up in ruins. Now, what is that temple a picture of? Well, it's a picture, firstly, of us individually, because Jesus lives in us. But it is also a picture of the church, his body. Jesus lives in his church. And it's the danger of ending up putting even legitimate things before the Lord. And it, it can cause ruin spiritually. I mean, think, it yeah, cover this whole area, the whole idea, going out and buying things, uh, doing the house up going on holiday, going out for meals, you name it. There is nothing wrong with any such things. But here's the question. With any one example, has the Lord okayed it? If he has, absolutely brilliantly. But here's the question. Do we even seriously inquire of him about it? Do we just assume, well, people go on holiday, so I'm going on holiday. What an odd thing for a Christian who is a slave to Jesus, his bondservant. What an odd thing for a slave who has no rights of his own to expect that he's going on holiday. If the master says, of course you can go on holiday, then you go on holiday. But how odd that we just automatically assume these things. I'm sure that nine times out of ten, the Lord says, yeah, go on holiday. Have fun. I'll be there. I'll have fun with you. But are our ears ever open to maybe the one time out of ten when the Lord says no to us? Do we even consider that he might be? Now that is the important thing. That whatever we do, let's make sure that we're not just assuming that it's all right. Oh, we'll go out for a meal next week. Or, uh, you know, sort of, oh, I think I'll, think I'll change my car, buy a new one. All right? Let's not just assume that because we want to do these things, they're right. Let's take them before the Lord and then do them only if we have peace about it. And let's do it being honest enough that if we have the slightest troubling in ourselves about it, that may be the Lord saying no, just maybe. And we've got to say, if we think the Lord is saying no, are we willing to say, right, no, I'm going to deny myself that because the Lord doesn't want it. That is the way in which we discover if we're in an idolatrous relationship with whatsoever it might be. And here, the fact that Ahab went to eat and drink, whereas Elijah went to pray, that, that shows us that Elijah had his priorities right. He had reached a point in his following the Lord where he knew when to deny himself even legitimate things. Now, often we think we've come a long way by denying ourselves illegitimate things, don't we? You know, sort of like, you know, sort of maybe you're used to going out and getting drunk and so you kiss the booze goodbye. And you think, oh, I'm really, I'm really going places with the Lord now. This is brilliant. I'm really maturing. And yes, indeed, that is progress. You might have chucked out all the porno magazines. And indeed, that is marvellous. That is progress. That is denying yourself 
an illegitimate thing for the Lord. But maturity isn't denying yourself illegitimate things. Maturity is when you deny yourself things that there is nothing wrong with at all, but simply because the Lord is saying, in this instance, no, and I have my reasons. You don't know them, but I know them, and that's all that matters. And Elijah knew when to deny himself even legitimate things. Not constantly, not all the time, that would be ridiculous. But the Lord could say no to Elijah, and Elijah would be listening and would actually do it. Now that's the important thing. Can the Lord say no to us in regards to legitimate things? Do we even give him the chance? Do we even ask him? Do we pray about things like holidays, spending money, blah, blah, blah? Do we? We ought to be doing. Now then also, the fact here that Elijah vanishes off to pray tells us something more about him personally. We've seen it, it's been hinted at, but we can really home in on it now. Remember, there has been a great miracle on Mount Carmel. Elijah has challenged the prophets of Baal and the prophets of the Asherah, and they've built an altar, and he's built an altar, and he says, right, you pray to your God, I'll pray to my God, and whichever God sends fire down from heaven and consumes the altar, he is God, all right? And of course, you know, they've done their thing and no God answered. Elijah does his thing and says, okay, Lord, answer, and bang, down it comes. And there's been a mighty demonstration of the power of God, and through Elijah as well, through a human channel, because God works through human channels. Now then, the point is here, after being used in such a mighty demonstration of God's power, Elijah vanishes back up the mountain in order to pray so that he couldn't even face the temptation of bathing in what you might call the ministerial limelight. Wouldn't it have been easy to stand there signing spiritual autographs, so to speak, hey? Wouldn't it have been easy? You know, like standing there, jacket slung casually over the shoulder. <laughs> bless you, bless you. Knowing that, ev oh wow, look how God used him. Knowing that everyone is, oh, what a, what a minister of the Lord. Well, no, Elijah doesn't want to do that. So he removes himself. He removes himself. No one could see him. And we saw last time how the people, when they saw the miracle, it was God they glorified and not Elijah. And here we see that as soon as that happened, bang, Elijah is off. He's not even there to be seen. And that tells us so much about Elijah. And of course it tells us that when God said to him three years earlier, or three and a half years earlier, Elijah, hide yourself. And do you remember down to Brook Cherith? Bash, bash, bash. That's the nails going in his coffin. All right. Bash, bash, bash. Indeed, that had done its job. Elijah was a man who wanted to hide himself. He didn't want to be seen. He only wanted the Lord to be seen, seen through him. And so here, at the point of maximum danger of being adulated by the people, he vanishes, he skips off, so that they don't even have a chance to think about him. And of course, there is a danger, you know, here in leadership. Some people want to put leadership up on a pedestal. Now, if, if leaders are put on a pedestal by other people, there's nothing the leaders can do about that, obviously. But there is far less chance of any Christian being adulated if they live and acted as if they didn't want to be 
Yeah, can you see what I mean? Um, it's not completely unavoidable. Any of us might end up, as it were, in people's limelight through no choice of our own. But the point is, there is always something that can be done whereby we can ensure that the glory is not going to us, but is going to the Lord. And Elijah here, as I say, rather than hanging around, I mean, he didn't make an appeal, did he? Anything like that. The miracle was done and he, he hopped it out of sight. He wasn't going to give the people any chance to adulate him at all. And it's important that that, that 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 is the same with us as well. And engraved on my heart, and it was engraved on Elijah's as well, is quite simply this. Leaders are plebs too. And it is so easy when you've got a leader-led relationship, it is so easy for it to turn into an up there, down there, a kind of a spiritual upstairs, downstairs. And that is not how Jesus operates. That is not what Jesus is all about. Him, Almighty God himself, humbled himself to become a man. It wasn't like him up there and us down here. And it's exactly the same as well. And had anyone, had anyone thought, well, I want to see Elijah. I'm going to find Elijah because, you know, he worked this great miracle and he's a great man and I want him as my spiritual role model and I'm just going to go and find him and put him on a pedestal for a bit. Because some people think like that. Had they found out where he was, they would have seen him on the ground with his face between his knees. Even if they'd have gone to find him out and they had found him, they'd still have had a job seeing him because he was curled up in a ball on his face in front of the Lord praying. Can you see? That is true humility. And, and we need that, all of us, you know, worked into our lives by the Holy Spirit. Right, okay, that's, that's, that's the first section. We, we move on to the second section now, and, and it's predominantly we're going to be concerning ourselves with, with prayer. Because basically what Elijah has done, he has vanished in order to pray. And, and there's um, a lot here. Let's, let's go through it verse by verse. And Elijah said to Ahab, Go up, eat and drink, for there is a sound of rushing of rain. Now, the point is, Elijah knew, because the Lord had told him, that not only would the drought continue as long as he was praying it would, and he had been praying that now for three and a half years, but the Lord has shown him that the drought would end when he prayed that it would. And Elijah knew, after this demonstration on Mount Carmel, Elijah sort of knew that now was the time for the drought to end. Now the point is, such was the faith that the Lord had given him here, that it was as real to him at this moment as if he could actually hear the rain already. He said, go up, eat and drink, for there's the sound of the rushing of rain. But there wasn't a cloud in the sky. We know that because the cloud appears later on in the story. But Elijah said, there's the sound of rain. And of course, what he's doing there, he's speaking out of true, the true faith of the Lord within him. Even though the thing hadn't happened yet, he knew it was going to because the Lord had said. And therefore, it was as real to him as if it was happening there and then. Now, this isn't kind of the silly kind of, you know, like when people walk around with broken legs saying, I'm healed, I'm healed, I'm believing, I'm healed, I'm healed. Now they are hobbling along on crutches saying they're healed. We're not talking about that kind of thing, all right? But the point is that this was so real 
It was so real to Elijah that God was going to fulfill his word, that although it hadn't happened yet, for Elijah it was as if he already, you know, as if the Lord had already fulfilled it. But nevertheless, he keeps on praying. So Elijah is not here hiding himself. When he says, oh, I can hear the rain, but of course it's not actually raining, he's not like being stupid. And, and, and saying something in faith as if it was true when it clearly wasn't true. It was a statement of his faith. It was his way of saying, well, as far as I'm concerned, it's raining already, God's going to do it. But then he went off and prayed for it to happen. So it wasn't Elijah in unreality or anything like that at all, but that was the certainty, that was the faith he had in the fulfilment of God's word. If you go to um, Hebrews, and let's see what... Um, the writer to the Hebrews says about this, because there's some really excellent verses here. Hebrews chapter 11, Hebrews chapter 11, and what he says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the men of old received divine approval. And here in the story of Elijah, we're seeing one of them do just that. By faith, we understand that the world was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was made out of things which do not appear. Now, there's a sense in which the more you look at those verses, there's an element in which the words almost merge into each other, because it's trying to get over a concept that it's difficult to actually put into words. But what it's saying is this, where God is concerned, all right, it talks about God creating. Now the point is, when God created the universe, he had before him nothing. Absolutely nothing. Then he spoke the word, and immediately nothing turned into something. Because that is the power of God. And yet, in God's mind, that universe was as definitely there when he planned to do it as it was when he had done it. Because he knew all he had to do was speak the word, bang, and there it would be. And when it talks about faith being the, insur the, the assurance of things hoped for, the convictions of things not seen, what it's talking about is that there are promises that God has made, there are things that God has said he is going to do. Now, in the present moment, with those promises unanswered, unfulfilled, there is not a sign of them. Any more than there was the sign of the universe coming into being before God said it was going to come into being. I.e., you've got absolutely nothing. But the point is, from that nothing, God is going to do his something. But because God has said he's going to do it, and because God doesn't lie, you can be as certain of it before it's happened, when there's still nothing, as you are after it's happened, when it's become a something, as it were. And that is what faith is. Faith rests purely on God's word. It doesn't rest on what you see. It doesn't rest on what is happening at the moment. It rests purely on the fact that God has spoken. If you go back into Deuteronomy, uh, right at the end of Deuteronomy in the Old Testament and uh, find chapter 29 and uh, there's just um, one verse here that kind of it gives us a little secret Deuteronomy chapter 29 and verse 29 now listen to this the secret things belong to the Lord our God but the things that are revealed 
belong to us and to our children forever. Now can you see what Moses is saying there? There are things that are secret. I, God's got them up his sleeve, keeps them under his hat, he doesn't tell us anything about them, there's no point we couldn't understand, or maybe he doesn't want us to know. So we can have nothing to do with that, because if God's keeping something a secret, or if God plans to do something next week, and he hasn't told us about it, well how can we know? You can't even be praying for it, can you? It's a secret thing. But, he says the things that are revealed belong to us. <coughs> now, this, this verse speaks of what I call seeing something in your spirit. I.e., if God has revealed something to you personally, then the mere fact that he's revealed it to you means that it is yours. If something is revealed, it's because it belongs to you. And I call it seeing something in your spirit. Now that phrase is unusually charismatic jargon for me. I don't like charismatic jargon at all. Uh, and this seeing something in your spirit is probably the closest I'll ever get. But it is nevertheless true. The point is that the Lord can reveal something to you. And the thing that he reveals that he wants you to have or he wants to come into being, the mere fact that he's revealed it to you means it's yours. He has designated it to you. It belongs to you. But of course it's not a reality yet. There's no sign of it. Not only is it not a reality, there is no human way even that it could become a reality. But the point is, if you hang on to that, if you count on that, if you pray that thing into being, then eventually your faith will turn into sight. And at God's word, in his time, the nothing will become something. Indeed, the something that God has revealed to you. Now, obviously, as soon as we get into the area of God revealing things to us subjectively, obviously, we have to be careful. Mistakes are going to be made. And in this area of what I'm calling seeing something in your spirit and praying it into being, believe me, I've made many mistakes. Some of them quite serious. But the nice thing is, they were the ones that I wasn't mistaken about. That's the point. We learn by making mistakes. And, and there are times when I can genuinely say that as a result of seeing something in my spirit, I have known it's going to happen, and it has happened. It might take years. There are things to this day that have, I, I've seen in my spirit many, many years ago, but they are going to happen. They are going to occur. Now, some of them might be wrong, you know, some of them might be mistakes, yes, but what I do know is the ones that are really of the Lord, those things are going to happen. And it doesn't matter how impossible it is, because God is in the business of working miracles. The impossibility of these things is nothing whatsoever to do with it. Now, obviously, we've got to be careful, okay. Uh, it can get daft. We can get silly about something like this. You know, we can end up seeing something new, as it were, in our spirit every time we pray. You know, we've got a list, you know, as long as the road of things that God has promised he's going to give us because he's shown it to us in our spirits. Therefore, it belongs to us. Of course, it can get silly. But can you see the principle? This is the principle of faith. This is the principle of answer prayer. And it's not a kind of a willy-nilly claiming this, that and the other all over the place. I emphasise, it's what the Lord has revealed to you that has been tested and has had a chance to kind of bear the fruit of time. And Elijah had seen, 
in the same way that years previously he had seen a drought in his spirit and so prayed for it and it happened, now he is seeing the pouring rain in his spirit and he knows that it is going to be over imminently. Let's, let's read on, verse, verse 42, So Ahab went up to eat and drink, and Elijah went up to the top of Carmel, and he bowed himself down upon the earth, and he put his face between his knees. And, uh, you know, so the point is that here, even though Elijah knows that God is now going to end the drought, notice that he doesn't say, okay, right, fine, God's going to end the drought, nothing more to do. He kept praying. Now, in the light of what I've just said, you know, that Elijah knew that the drought was about to end, one might have thought that no more prayer was needed. But that would have been a big mistake, and it was a mistake that Elijah was not going to make. You actually get the teaching on, on the scene today, and there are some Bible teachers and many Christians who adhere to this teaching. And what they say is that to ask something of God more than once is by definition unbelief. So, they would say, for instance, um, you know, sort of say there's a need you have, and it's a legitimate need. You pray, and you ask and you claim it. Bang. Now they say, if according to your faith be it unto you, then to ask again can only mean that you're in unbelief. So you only ask once, and any other asking is unbelief. Now let me say, that is complete piffle. Because the great danger is, even when we know that something is God's will, nevertheless it has to be prayed into being. That is the way that the nothing turns into something. It is through us praying. And we must be careful not to stop praying too soon. And we can now go on, and with the rest of this I can show you why it is so important that we don't stop praying too soon, and why it is that Satan does everything he can to stop us. Let's, let's read verse, verse 43 now. And he said to his servant, Go up now, look towards the sea. And he went up and looked and said, There is nothing. And he said, Go again seven times. Now the point is, Elijah, he knows that the drought is going to end. He knows that. He's seen it in his spirit, to use the jargon I was using earlier. He's got that from the Lord. All right? But he doesn't just put his feet up and say, oh, thank you, Lord, thank you, Lord. He goes to pray. And he's praying that into being. And he prays, and he says to his servant, can you go and see if the prayer is being answered yet? All right. So off his servant goes. Now seven times, seven times in a row, his servant comes back and he says, there's nothing. There is not the slightest thing to suggest, Elijah, that God is answering your prayer. Now, seven times is the perfect number. Do you remember when Jesus said about Peter, forgiving your brother who sins against you seven times seventy? It's kind of a way of saying, you know, sort of like, you know, ad infinitum. And virtually, you know, we could all list a million and ad infinitum examples of prayer, which when you look, there's nothing not the slightest evidence that God is answering our prayers. And the fact that it's seven times means that sometimes one can go a very, very, very long time praying, and I'm talking weeks, months, years, where at the end of years of praying there is still nothing. 
Now then, at that point, what do you do? Do you get discouraged? No. You pray on. And, really, the servant is making a mistake. Because the servant is coming back and saying, there's nothing. Now, that's what our sinful natures tell us. That is what our evil hearts of unbelief tell us. What the servant should have said is, oh, Elijah, nothing yet. I'll go back and check. Can you see the difference between there is nothing, unbelief, and nothing yet, I'll go back and check, faith? Can you see? Now, our sinful natures say there's nothing. The Holy Spirit says, nothing yet, keep praying. And that is the way that we need to, you know, pray. We, we all know what it is to pray and pray and pray and to see nothing, alright? This is something we can identify with. Again and again, he went to see, is there any clouds? Nothing. It all looked very negative, as if nothing was happening at all. But what I want to show you is that this is actually the biblical norm for prayer. You do get examples throughout the Bible of prayer that gets answered very quickly. And probably all of us can come up with examples of that. But let me tell you, statistically, long-standing prayer is the norm, not prayer that is answered very, very quickly. Go to um, Matthew chapter 15, and we're going to have a good old belt round the New Testament to see what we can gather from this. Matthew 15 and verse 21. Now I'm going to say a little bit about this here, and we're going to come back to this later on in the study. But Matthew 15, and uh, this was um, a woman who was a Gentile, who came to Jesus saying that her daughter was demonized, okay. Now let's just read from verse 21. Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the districts of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came and cried, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. Well, here's your sheep. Well, this is someone getting born again, isn't it? This is proclaiming Jesus is Lord. Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely demonized. But he did not answer her a word. <laughs> so here we've got a woman who has come to Jesus. She has made a request of him. That's what prayer is. And the response that she got, silence. Jesus didn't even speak to her. Now, we'll be back to that a bit later. Now go over to Luke. And... Uh, going to read two little parables in Luke and uh, the thing to notice is that both of them are specifically in regards to prayer. First of all, Luke chapter 11. Now, first of all, let's, let's start reading from verse 1. He was praying in a certain place and when he ceased, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray. And then the Lord taught them, you know, what some call the Lord's Prayer, although it should technically be the disciples' prayer. Jesus never had to pray for forgiveness for his sins. We do every day. Now go down to verse 5. <clears throat> and he said to them, Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves? For a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, Do not bother me, 
the door is now shut and my children are in bed I cannot get up and give you anything I tell you yet because of his importunity sorry I tell you though he will not get up and give him anything because he is a friend yet because of his importunity or that means he's going on and on and on about it he will rise and give him whatever he needs I tell you ask and it will be given seek and you will find knock and it will be open to you and in the literal Greek in the continuous tense in which this is written in the Greek it's literally ask and go on asking seek and go on seeking knock and go on knocking alright it's all about importunity going on and on and on in prayer and not giving up so what we have there is that Jesus talking about you know the disciples have said Lord teach us to pray so Jesus, you know, gives them the quick rundown, our Father art in heaven, hallowed be, blah, blah, blah. And then he goes on to tell them a parable, and he says basically it's about someone whose friends turn up in the middle of the night and they need some food. But they haven't got any food, so he goes to a friend of his and he knocks on his door, says, I need some food. Now this friend wants him to go away, doesn't want to get up and give him some food. So he tells him to clear off. But because he keeps banging and banging and banging eventually the bloke does get out of bed and give him what he wants but not out of friendship simply because he knew that he wasn't going to get a wink of sleep until he did alright so there you have a parable about a friend who wasn't really a very good friend after all okay now go over to Luke chapter 18 and again find verse 1 Again, notice what it's about. Luke chapter 18, verse 1. <clears throat> and Jesus told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor regarded man. That's a biblical way of saying this guy was a tow rag, alright? Here was a guy who had no regard for anything, alright? He was you know, not interested, totally selfish. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, vindicate me against my adversary. For a while he refused. But afterwards he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor regard man, yet because this widow bothers me, I will vindicate her or she will wear me out by her continual coming. Now, what's interesting about these parables is they're about prayer. So, obviously, in the first one, the bloke who needed bread in the middle of the night, he represents us, the people praying. And the widow who wanted justice in the second parable, again, represents us, God's people, praying. But what's so interesting is that in these parables, how does what characters does Jesus use to represent the God who answers? In the first one, he represents God as a selfish friend, who kind of says he's your friend really, but just gives you food to shut you up because he wants to go back to sleep. And then in the second parable, God is represented by an unjust judge, who eventually hands out justice, not because he cares about it, but because he's going to be bothered until he does. So he does it for a quiet life. So therefore, in these parables, God is likened to the two things that he most certainly isn't. A selfish friend, 
and an unjust judge. The exact opposite to what he is. God is not a selfish friend. God is not an unjust judge. So why is it that Jesus likens God to that in these parables about praying? Well, the reason is simply this. Because Jesus was well aware that for us in our praying, that it would often look as if God was an unfriendly and unwilling friend and an unjust judge. Can you see what I mean? Jesus was representing God in that way, not because it was true of God, but because in the time lapse that is so often needed before prayer is answered, Jesus was well aware that in the interim it would feel like to us as if God wasn't bothered at all. And that is why he tells this parable. And the point of it is they got there in the end. So you keep going because you will get there in the end as well. So the push behind the parables here isn't that God is horrible, but it's the fact that because often there is nothing unquote so many times, Jesus knew that we would often feel as if God was reluctant to answer and therefore uh, a selfish friend and an unjust judge. But the point was, the man and the widow, they both got their requests answered in the end, and that's the point. And Jesus is saying, no matter what it feels like, even if it feels like this, keep going because you will get what it is you're praying for if it's in God's will. So keep going. And what I want to do is, is ask and then answer the question, well, with this kind of there is nothing, seven times and these long spans often before prayer is answered, we've got to ask why? Why is prayer like that? Why can't it be that, um, you know, I mean, if God is a just judge, well, why can't he just hand out justice the moment you ask for it? Or, if God is a friendly friend, why can't he just give you the bread you need immediately? Wouldn't, wouldn't life be simpler? Well, yeah, life would be simpler. But, what we're going to see is, we live in a fallen world, we ourselves have sinful natures, and this sinful world and our sinful natures, at back of them, are receiving all the time the push from Satan and the principalities and powers. So, in answering the question, why does prayer have to be like this, we've got to actually look at three separate things. Now, the first one we'll dispense with very quickly, alright? And it's just to say that prayer, and this is a principle we've got to underline, prayer doesn't and never will force the Lord to go against his own will. He has not, and you can go into a Christian bookshop and you can buy loads of books that teach that God has, as it were, in the death of Jesus, God has written us a blank check and Jesus has signed it and all we have to do is fill it in by faith and whatever you want, bang. God has not, I repeat, not done anything like that at all. There is no blank check with our name on it where we merely have to fill in what it is we want and then claim it in faith. Not at all. Um, let's actually see this. Go to, to John, John 14. Because you do get, you know, they home in on, well, Jesus said, whatever you ask in my name. And they say, whatever. And of course, whatever means whatever. You know, this kind of blank, blank check stuff. Let's, um, let's actually see that that, that, that is, is not the case. First of all, John 14. John 14. 
And uh, let's first of all read verse 13. Whatever you ask in my name, I will do it, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Now, some Christians, they read that verse, and what they're emphasizing is, oh, the anything in his name, absolutely anything, and he'll do it. You ask anything, and as long as it's in the name of Jesus, it's yours. And hence, you get this kind of claiming faith teaching. You know, you just name it and claim it, and it's yours, all right. Uh, let's, let's go over to uh, chapter 16, and uh, let's see verse, verse 23. And Jesus says, In that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, if you ask anything of the Father, he will give it to you in my name. Now, what we've got to do with those two verses is we've got to look at them again. And we've got to notice, is this a blank check? Is Jesus here teaching that literally anything you want, you pray in the name of Jesus and it's yours. Well, no, he's not saying that at all. In the first couple of verses we just looked at, you get in my name. So, firstly, Jesus is saying that anything that you pray in my name, I will do for you. Now, it's that in my name bit that is all important. Now, think about it. What is the significance of those three words, in my name? Well, think about this, alright? You've just thrown a brick through a jeweller's window. You're, you're having it away on your toes down the street with your swag bag, alright? Suddenly, your collar gets felt. And someone says, excuse me, I'm arresting you in the name of the law. Now, in the name of, what does it represent? It represents authority. A policeman can arrest you in the name of the law because he has been given the authority to do so. So when Jesus is talking about, you can pray for anything in my name, what he's saying is, if you pray for anything that I have revealed to you, and I authorize for you, that will be done. Can you see? To pray in the name of Jesus is to pray under his authority. Not a willy-nilly what you want, but it's when you're praying for that which he has revealed to you that he wants for you as well. And also, it talks about that the Father may be glorified in the Son. So there's another condition, that the glory goes to God. Now, can you imagine if you and I had blank checks, and we could ask the Lord for anything, how would that glorify Him? You know, how would us all driving around in Mercedes, 500 SLs, glorify the Lord? Living in whacking great big mansions, you know, sort of, I mean, it would be absolutely awful, wouldn't it? Can you, I mean... Absolutely perfect, that would not glorify God. But what Jesus does promise here is that when we pray according to his will, he will do it. And again in the John 16 verse, you've got it again. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, he, if you ask anything of the Father, he will give it to you in my name. There you have it again. The, the condition here for answer prayer is that it is prayer according to the will of God. If the Lord authorizes you to have something, you pray for it, it'll be yours. If he hasn't, if he says, well, I don't want you to have a Mercedes Beresford, well, believe you me, I could pray till my dying day, I'm not going to get a Mercedes. Well, I might rob a bank and get the, you know, buy one with the proceeds, but there's no way that God is going to give me something that he doesn't want me to have. And if that's the case, then prayer certainly doesn't twist his arm. Uh, just go over into 1 John, just so we're, we're covering the main verses that come up here. 1 John... And uh, if you find chapter 3, and find verse 21. 
1 John chapter 3 verse 21 and here the apostle says beloved if our hearts do not condemn us we have confidence before God because if you pray for Mercedes 500 you would not have confidence before God your heart would condemn you I guarantee it and we receive from him whatever we ask oh there you've got it again whatever you ask these people say name it and claim it look what he goes on to say because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him so if what we are praying has been born of his commandments we will receive it again it's not a blank check go over 1 John still but chapter 5 and let's read verse 14 and 15 and this sums it up beautifully and this is the confidence which we have in him that if we ask anything according to his will he hears us now that tells me something else if you pray for something out of God's will he ain't even listening <laughs> you see he's omniscient he knows it's coming you know, and if I'm going to kneel down and pray for a Mercedes 500 SL then the Lord knows that prayer's coming and he'll, he'll do the crossword or something I mean he'll only hear you if you're praying according to his will right? let alone answer so he says if we ask anything according to his will he hears us and if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask we know that we have obtained, obtained the requests made of him so therefore what we're seeing here is that you can be praying maybe for a long time and seven times there is nothing well it's just possible it's because God's answer is no <laughs> then there will never be anything so, so let's get that out of the way first your, the answer to your prayer might well be being delayed simply because it's not God's will and it's never going to be answered anyway and it doesn't matter how many times as it were you send the servant to look it's always going to be nothing prayer must be according to God's will but the next two things that we're going to move on to apply to prayer that is God's will prayer that God does intend to answer and in these next two we're going to see the reasons why with prayer we've got to keep going and not lose hope and give up let's go back to Matthew 15 and this woman who received the rather rude response as it were from Jesus have just been totally ignored <laughs> Matthew 15 and uh, verse verse 21 again right we'll read from where we read before and Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon and behold a Canaanite woman from that region came out and cried have mercy upon me O Lord son of David my daughter is severely demonized but he did not answer her a word now that's where we left the story that was her there is nothing and his disciples came and begged him saying send her away for she is crying after us it's getting even worse for her now because now the disciples are trying to convince Jesus to actually send her packing he answered I was only sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel now when he does eventually see she's asked something of him heal my daughter she's got a demon please cast her <coughs> out Lord right and she's do it she knows he's the Messiah she knows the Old Testament even though she's a Gentile first of all he ignores her then the disciples gather around and say Lord send her packing when Jesus does eventually speak to her he says I've come for the Israelites dear <laughs> I'm here for the Israelites I was sent only to the lost house lost sheep of the house of Israel but she came and knelt before him saying Lord help me you see she's not going to give up is she 
she is not going to let it go and now she kneels before him all the time she is acknowledging him to be the Lord God of Israel she knows alright and he answered it is not fair to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs now the dogs was the rather rude uh, phrase that the self-righteous Jews use for the Gentiles I mean, they're no good you know they're dogs alright so here Jesus says, you know, to her, he's saying, look, I, I can't, you know, I can't take the children's bread and give it to the dogs. I, you surely can't expect me, you know, to sort of like the power that I've brought for Israel. You can't expect me to, to give you some, can you? And she said, yes, Lord, even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. And she responds to him and she says, yeah, but Lord, even like if you've got a banquet, you might have the dogs around, you know, the king would have his dogs. And the king's dogs were always free to be around the table, to be fed and to eat anything that fell off the table. So, in a, you know, in a sense, she responds, that's not strictly true, Lord, is it? You know, she's, she's not having any messing about at all. And, um, and look, then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith be it done as you desire and her daughter was healed instantly now can you see what Jesus was doing there he set up a delay in order to draw her faith out of her every time the more she met like a blockage of Jesus seeming unwilling to do it the stronger became her petitioning even to the point she started arguing with him but she did so not out of sin not out of disrespect it was because she knew that this was the Lord God she knew that he wanted to heal her daughter and she was just going to keep going until he did so now that is faith being drawn out of her can you see the point so the delay there Jesus's apparent refusal it wasn't a refusal at all it was a delay so that her faith could grow can you see that go go back to Hebrews chapter 11 again and uh, another verse in Hebrews chapter 11 that I want us to look at <clears throat> Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 6 and it says and without faith it is impossible to please him for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him now again that's faith faith is that knowing that God is and that he responds to genuine faith and because God loves faith he loves it when he sees faith in us and it's horrible for him when he sees unbelief because that's us saying we don't trust you all right therefore the Lord sometimes will delay to draw faith out in us uh, go over to James just after Hebrews James chapter 1 let's read from verse 5 to 8 and he says if any of you lacks wisdom and this could be anything we need let him ask God who gives to all men generously and without reproaching and it will be given him but let him ask in faith with no doubting for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind for that person must not suppose that a double-minded man unstable in all his ways will receive anything from the Lord the Lord loves faith 
that's what he wants and he wants to draw it out of us uh, go to Matthew 17 Matthew chapter 17 and find verse 20 and uh, in the second uh, part of verse 20 he says for truly I say to you if you have faith as a grain of mustard seed you will say to this mountain move hence to yonder place and it will move and nothing will be impossible to you now here Jesus is not literally saying that if necessary you could actually speak to a mountain and a mountain will literally vanish I mean he's not being literal there it's an, illu an allusion back to Zechariah 4 which you can read some other time but if you go through Zechariah chapter 4 you'll see that this idea of the mountain is simply a picture of whatever it is that is in the way of God's will being done and whatever it is that mountain can be removed by faith but it can only be removed by faith now go back into Luke 17 see something here that is vitally important because we've got to raise the question okay faith is vital without it you're not going to get a thing from God but the next question we've got to raise is this okay so whose faith? Whose faith? Luke 17 and verse 5 The apostles said to the Lord increase our faith Now they're, they're falling in all, all this teaching about faith it's getting in the penny is well you know the, the denarii is dropping all over the place alright in their heads and they're thinking right faith yes that's the answer right then Lord increase our faith problem solved and the Lord said if you had faith as a grain of mustard seed you could say to this sycamine tree be rooted up and be planted in the sea and it would obey you now the thing to notice there the disciples are talking about faith they've said Lord increase our faith because they are thinking of faith in terms of quantity how much you've got Jesus's answer says no nothing to do with quantity you only need a tiny little bit of faith nothing to do with quantity it's quality that counts it's not the amount of faith you've got it's the type of faith you've got alright now there Jesus speaks about the faith the size of a grain of mustard seed now in your mind cross-reference that with Jesus's teaching about the grain of wheat falling into the ground and dying and because it falls into the ground and dies it becomes something else the seed becomes a crop it becomes a plant now what Jesus really is saying to them here is he's saying look you're saying to me increase our faith he says no I'm not going to increase your faith your faith is useless what needs to happen is for your faith to fall into the ground and die and to become a completely different type of faith so what we're seeing here is that yes we can only receive from God through faith but what we're going to see now is that it isn't our faith that is meant to be the way that we do receive things from God go to Mark chapter 11 Mark chapter 11 and verse 22 
Now, I'm going to have to slightly change my translation of the Bible, and no matter what translation of the Bible you currently have, yours is wrong, because there is not one translation of the Bible that translates this literally according to the Hebrew. Mark 11, verse 22. Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, there's the Zechariah 4 thing again, be taken up and cast into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you receive it, and you will. Now there is a glaring error in that translation, which is not what the Greek says at all. I will read it again. It's the first four words. It should read, And Jesus answered them, Have the faith of God. That's what it says in the Greek. That is what Jesus said. He didn't say, Have faith in God. He said, Have God's faith. Now, can you see the difference between our faith and God's faith? Go over to Galatians chapter 2. See Paul talking about this. Galatians chapter 2. And find verse 20. And Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live. Do you remember the seed falling into the ground and dying? It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, and now I'm going to give you what the Greek says, and to my knowledge only the King James Version has this right. And the life I now live in, in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God. If your translation says, and the life, uh, the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, it's wrong. That's not what it says in the Greek. It says, the life I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. And Paul is there talking about death to self. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. That chorus that we sing. And so what we're seeing here is that the Christian life, or this aspect of the Christian life, it's not us putting our faith in, trying hard to believe. It is the faith of Jesus himself in our hearts because he's living in us. It's not our faith at all, it avails nothing. But Jesus is our great high priest who intercedes for us, and Jesus always gets his prayers answered. And Jesus is in us, and Jesus' faith is in our hearts. It is that faith, the faith of Jesus, that draws from God that which he wants to give us. So therefore, in regards to this waiting, when you've got to pray on and on and on and on and on, I'll tell you what it does. It brings out all your doubts. It brings out all the unbelief. You think, oh, God's not going to answer. He's rotten. He's like an unjust judge. He's like a friend who won't get up in the middle of the night and give me bread. All, all the muck comes up, doesn't it? And eventually you get to the point where, you know, sort of like you scarce believe anymore at all. And you die to the very faith that you're longing for. You die to it. But I'll tell you what, that brings a peace and a certainty. And it brings out a faith of a completely different order. Because with your faith, with my faith out of the way, then the faith of Jesus can come through. And that really is what I meant earlier 
by seeing something in your spirit. Now a second aspect here, alright, because what we're seeing here is that God uses the waiting like that delay, you know, you pray on and on and on and the answer doesn't come, that delay. But what he's doing is he's using that delay for our character development and maturing. You know, the death to self. The life of Jesus coming through. He's using that delaying process to mature us. And then secondly, there can often be times when the reason God delays isn't purely because he wants to kill off our faith and draw out his faith, but simply because the answer to the prayer is yes, but not yet. The very thing we're praying for may be right in time, but it's wrong now. There may need to be character development first. There may need to be more maturity. I mean, for instance, say if someone's in the position of praying for marriage, Lord, bring me my partner for life. Now the Lord is saying, yes, but not yet. If I did, you wouldn't be happy. You, you'd blow it. Maybe you're not ready. Maybe the partner's not ready. You don't even know who she is yet or who he is yet. But the Lord knows they're not ready. So he thinks, right, later, you're not ready for each other yet. You'd spoil each other. You need to grow a bit more. Uh, you might be praying, oh, Lord, give me a better job. He says, yes, I will. But I want you to be a bit more contented with the one you've got at the moment. I just want that little bit of growth, that little bit of maturity from you. When you're content there, then I'll move you on. Maybe you're longing for your own home. The Lord says, yeah, of course I want to give you your own home. But at the moment, if I gave it to you now, you'd end up in idolatry to you and I'd have to be convicting you with Haggai 1 verse 9 all the time and you know, it'd be boring, so I'm not going to give it to you yet. But when you're ready, I will, alright? And any number, a gift of the Spirit, you may be yearning for it. Oh Lord, I want to prophesy. Lord, I want to be used in healing. The Lord's saying, yes, you will. But if I did it at the moment, you know, you'd sort of like be lining up for the next kind of chief apostle and elder of our souls. Because it'd go to your head you think, oh, aren't I spiritual? So he says, not yet. I just want you to grow a little bit more. So there are times when the Lord maybe holds off answers to prayer purely because we're not quite ready to receive them. After all, you don't give a four-year-old a penknife. Whereas your six, well, your 14-year-old who's in the Scouts might find one very useful, but you don't give it to a four-year-old, do you? But nevertheless, even if you're waiting, and the reason is yes but later because you're not ready, nevertheless keep on praying. And then the last thing I want to home in on about this delay is quite simply the whole area of spiritual warfare. Go to 1 John chapter 5. Back into 1 John. This bit is really very quick revision, I suppose, of the, the area we covered in um, the Demonology series. But 1 John 5, verse 19. Now, he says this, We know that we are of God, and the whole world is in the power of the... This is 1 John chapter 5, verse 19. We know that we are of God, and the whole world is in the power of the evil one. Therefore, whatever it is you're praying for, be it a thing, be it a situation, because that is by definition part of the world, it, the very thing you're praying for, is in the power of the evil one. Therefore, it has to be taken from the demon powers first, and their hold over it broken by ongoing prayer. Whatever it is that you're praying for is bound by the devil. 
and the principalities and powers. Therefore, you've got to pray on until the, the, the bringing of the, into the, the situation of the Lord by your prayers has broken that hold. Then it can be released. We saw in Daniel, didn't we? Um, you know, when Daniel was praying and, and, and he was asking for revelation about the future and the day he prayed, an angel was dispatched with the answer to his prayer, literally a prophecy telling him the future. But the angel got to him three weeks later. The angel was dispatched the moment Daniel prayed. But the angel didn't get to him for another three weeks. Why? Because there was a battle between that angel, the goody angel, and the baddie, Principality of Persia, and there was this big fight. And indeed, the only way the angel who had got dispatched eventually got to Daniel was because uh, the archangel Gabriel stepped in and took over the fight with, you know, the demon of Persia. So, I mean, th there was that spiritual warfare. The delay was there, but Daniel kept praying, and it was because he kept praying that the angel got through and that the demonic powers were defeated by the angelic powers. Um, I've often mentioned too um, about the walls of Jericho. That picture of spiritual warfare in pushing into Canaan is not a picture of heaven. The promised land is not a picture of heaven. <coughs> There's no warfare in heaven. It's a picture of getting in and taking from Satan what's been promised to you. And Israel had been promised the land of Canaan, the promised land. But the Canaanites were running the show, a picture of the demonic powers. And so Israel had to go in and take the land from those powers. And when they got to Jericho, Jericho, the first big battle, Jericho belonged to them. It was theirs by right. But they couldn't get to it. There was a big wall around it. Now what did that wall, you know, what was that all about? It was the holding power of Satan over the situation that belonged to them. And you remember, they marched around the walls. That was a picture of prayer, a picture of faith. They just walked round and round the, the walls because only prayer and only the Lord through prayer can break those satanic bonds, all right? And therefore, once the walls came down, in they went to take Jericho, the thing that had been promised to them, the thing that they had seen, as it were, in their spirit. And I don't know if you remember when we did the demonology series, I, I, I came up with the, what I think is a rather quaint phrase, and I spoke about the triangular mode of prayer, <laughs> or prayer in its mode of triangularity. So I like phrases like that, I think they're fun. But basically, this triangularity of prayer is simply like this. Prayer is firstly to the Lord, point one of the triangle. It is always for something or some situation, the second point of the triangle. And it must therefore be against the principalities and powers, the third point of the triangle. So prayer is to the Lord for something or some situation and against the demonic principalities and powers. And so what we're seeing here, basically, with Elijah, is quite simply, he understood all these things and he prayed. And he prayed, and he prayed, and he prayed. Let's read from verse 44 now. And at the seventh time he said, this is the servant, Behold, a little cloud like a man's hand is rising out of the sea. Now faith had become sight. Then he stopped praying. And he said, Go up, say to Ahab, prepare your chariot, 
go down lest the rain stop you. And in a little while the heavens grew black with clouds and wind, and there was a great rain. So this one tiny cloud like a man's hand, that was enough. Faith had become sight, Elijah stopped praying. And very soon that tiny little cloud was now dominating the entire sky, and the rain was pouring down. And Ahab rode, rode and went to Jezreel, and the hand of the Lord was on Elijah, and he girded up his loins and ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. So Elijah prayed until his answer came. He was praying according to what God had revealed to him. And that was tremendously important. And when the answer did come, it was a real deluge. The answer to his prayer was abundant. And if we continue in prayer, so will it be for us. Go back to James. And just read what James says about Elijah. James chapter 5 and halfway through verse 16. He says, The prayer of a righteous man has great power in its effects. Elijah was a man of like nature with ourselves. And we saw at the beginning of this series that that means all the emotions, all the weaknesses, blah, blah, blah. And he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again. And the heavens gave, and, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth brought forth its fruit. Because once the drought was over, then the famine was over as well. And uh, let's just last scripture. Go to Philippians, because we're really underlining prayer here, aren't we? Philippians chapter four, and I'll start reading with verse four. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let all men know your forbearance. The Lord is at hand. Have no anxiety about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And he have prayer again. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will keep your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And we must make sure that more and more and more we are becoming a praying church but a praying church made up of praying individuals. So I can't just leave it to the church, it's each one of us individually, as a church, but individually as well. And more and more, and in my own life, the Lord is drawing me to this. I make no great claims of making any fantastic progress, but I'm going slowly in the right direction, and, and that, that's the important thing, all right? And this is why the prayer evening on a Friday is so important. And I am so glad that, that, that Friday is so populated by us. Um, here on the Tuesdays, because people can get the tapes, they get the teaching, doesn't particularly matter if they can't make it. But on the Fridays, there's, most of us are there, and that is brilliant. And that has got to continue because it's so important. Our prayer evening is the generator of power for everything that God is doing in this fellowship. And we must make sure that that keeps up and that it's improving and intensifying all the time. Now, you may be thinking, having got this far in the series, that all this stuff, and we just read it again, that Elijah was a man of like passions with ourselves. I don't know, you know, you might be feeling that at the moment you can't quite identify with Elijah. I mean, he seems to be flying, as it were, spiritually just too high, doesn't he, to actually identify with. Where are all these weaknesses? Where, where are all these failings? Where is Elijah just like us? Well, next time we answer a question 
and it is simply this what do you do with a prophet who has got so depressed that he's suicidal and all because he's frightened of a woman and we answer that question next week then we'll see Elijah is indeed a man of like passions as to ourselves